1: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's
0: plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rebecca Turkington, and I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Amy Eisen-Calendar to discuss her new book, Tunisia's Modern Woman, Nation Building and State Feminism in the 1960s. Dr. Callender is an associate professor of Middle East History at Syracuse University. And her first book, Women, Gender, and the Palace Households in Ottoman Tunisia, is a social history of the families that governed Tunisia in the 18th and 19th centuries. She's also published several articles on the post-colonial relationship between Tunisia and France, and on the 2011 Tunisian Revolution and the post-Ben Ali era. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Rebecca, thank
2: you for inviting me. I am very flattered by your kind and generous invitation and delighted to have an opportunity to talk about the book.
0: Great, well, Tunisia's Modern Woman is brand new this past summer from Cambridge University Press. I should say for listeners who can't see it, it has a really wonderful pop art cover. Um, And it's a book that I think will appeal to researchers beyond the geographic scope of North Africa. You know, you draw on a really wide range of sources and methods that make this an interesting contribution to a lot of different historical conversations. So the history of reproductive rights, Cold War development politics, um, emotions in marriage, transnational feminist networks. And we'll talk through a lot of those intersections. Um, But before we get into the content of the book, I'd like to ask you about your own background. So how did you first decide to work on Tunisian history? And what was the path that brought you to this topic in particular? So um,
2: when I started graduate school, I had spent time living and teaching in southern France, where there is a Significant um, North African community. So, some of my introduction to the Middle East and North Africa was in some ways mediated through France. Um, so, I was more interested in in North Africa, in part due to the the ways that Algerian and Moroccan and Tunisian culture informs some counterculture and music and artistic practices in in southern France. So, that was part of my introduction. Um, And as an undergraduate, I worked with Matthew Connolly, who does work on Algeria and whose second book, Fatal Misconceptions, also deals with questions of reproductive rights and and population. And so some of that influence um, is is visible um, in, in the current book.
0: So your first book looks at the 18th and 19th centuries. Why did you decide to focus on this period in Tunisian history for this book? Which, for listeners, is this window of transition after the country gained independence from France in 1956.
2: So, when when I first went to Tunisia, um, this was about 20 years ago, in the early years of my graduate education, I. Was introduced to Tunisia in large part by a woman named Nabiha Jarad, who was who was a professor of French at um, the 9th of April Campus at the University of Tunis, and, you know, when I was in Tunisia, Nabiha had kind of said to me, "Well, if you don't have anything to do, you should go to the library." And so I spent a few months when I wasn't actually doing research and didn't have a specific project, just sitting around Tunisian libraries and spending a lot of time reading. And many of the books that I gravitated towards were ones that were about more contemporary questions um, and about questions of of women and gender, because I was um, friends with a Tunisian woman and asking her questions um, about Tunisia, and she had a certain cynicism towards some of the narratives about women's liberation. And so I started reading some of the books by Tunisian scholars like Suad Bakalti, and Ilham Marzuki, who have written about women's movements um, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And then, of course, when I, I was doing research for my, for my first book, um, you know, I was trained largely by Ottoman historians and colleagues and scholars working on the 18th and 19th centuries, and in many ways working in Tunisia, those materials are much more accessible in the archive. Um, And when I was finishing that project was around 2010, 2011, when I was starting to wrap that up. And with the Tunisian revolution or the beginning of the revolution and the protests of 2010 and 2011, what I noticed was that, you know, these narratives that today are referred to as the narratives of Tunisian exceptionalism, that it, it really doesn't take long in Tunisia to realize that the narratives about Tunisian democracy and exceptionalism are are very superficial. And this was clear to me as a graduate student, as a foreigner, spending a few months here and there in Tunisia, you know, between 2001 and the end of 2010. But yet these narratives continued to be very pervasive. And the question of women seemed to be one of the ways that this narrative was continuously propped up more so in popular discourses than in academic ones, but because within the within Middle East studies northern Africa has often been marginal in ways that other spaces like the Gulf have been marginal, and when it is included it's only in in selective ways um, and so this narrative not just of exceptionalism but the way that women seem to be a piece of that narrative are ones that were really brought back to my attention um, in 2010 and 2011. And at that point, with the fall of Ben Ali's regime um, and the dismantling of his single state political party in the RCD apparatus, it became possible to ask questions that were much more politically sensitive and taboo prior to 2011.
0: So you open this book with a really fantastic melodramatic story of young love and scandal, which was serialized in the women's magazine FISA. And you draw a lot throughout the book on these texts from women's the women's press and from literary journals. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose these sources um, and how they're useful to understanding broader political changes at this moment?
2: Yeah, I also really like the... Um... The story that I used to, to open the book. That's um, the story called Saïda. And it's what was called a photo roman or a photo-novel. And it's this innovation in the 1950s and 1960s of a way of telling a story that's juxtaposing photographs being printed with text on top of them to occupy a space somewhere between a movie and a comic strip as as a way of telling a story that's using technology and innovative. And one of the reasons why I rely on um, the women's press is because I found it to be really fascinating and a really engaging and interesting source. Um, You know, and some of the material in many ways, a few years ago or a couple of decades ago, might've been considered superficial and unworthy of scholarly attention. But in the last few decades, there's really been a push for recognizing popular culture as an important source. And I think this has been led by um, anthropologists primarily and historians have been slower to catch up. But as occupying the space somewhere in between popular culture and, and print media, I found that these women's magazines are really a rich source into different aspects of women's lives, even when they are in no ways representative of the lives of the vast majority of of Tunisian women of this era. The other question that is a familiar one to most scholars working on post-colonial Tunisia is that there really is not a central archive for for doing historical work after independence. Um, The majority of documents are are not declassified and are not available at the National Archive, so then print sources, newspapers, magazines, newsletters, um, scholarly journals become a really important window to access what's happening during that period and, in fact, give us really wonderful insights and different perspectives than we would get from state-organized archives.
0: And certainly they bring a lot of fun color, I think, to this book as well. Um,
2: Yes, I agree.
0: (laughs) So let's start with the title, Tanisha's Modern Woman. Who is Tanisha's Modern Woman? What are the characteristics of this sort of hegemonic femininity? And who are the main actors that are shaping this construction of womanhood?
2: Great question. Um, So for the title... I intentionally framed this in the singular, Tunisia's modern woman, as opposed to in the plural, because the hegemonic discourse about modern womanhood is a very singular one that represents modern womanhood as an urban, middle-class womanhood and, and a very secular womanhood in ways that marginalize and exclude many Tunisians. And you know, part of the book is trying to explore the ways that this image does not fully capture the experiences of most Tunisian women, but is part of a dialogue about what modernity means and and about gender roles. So the, the secular and nationalist state constructs an image of womanhood that is part of its political project of consolidating authoritarian political control. And I think this is really important to always put at the front of conversations about um, women's rights in Tunisia, that it is part of a state-building project. It is part of um, the central state wanting to control religion. It happens in similar ways to the established narratives we have in Tunisian history about the state wanting to control the labor unions, right? And so women are another part of this process that I think shed more light on what's happening in this period of state building and the consolidation of political authority under Tunisia's first president. So the state wants to make sure that family, um, tribe, region, religion are not poles of identity and that people's main allegiance is to the state itself. And that's part of what this project is all about. It also falls in line with Tunisia's foreign policy and the Tunisian government takes a very clear stance in the Cold War of being allied with the United States um, and with the Western Bloc, despite a few disagreements with France in, in the years of the Algerian War of Independence. I mean, Tunisia is largely in the Western Bloc and pretty comfortably remains in that position. So the image of modern womanhood is part of its argument to be representing a modern secular nation state and wanting to participate in some of these local Cold War rivalries between different leaders of of different states and to bring women into that um, as a symbol of what modern Tunisia represents. It also becomes part of the tourist industry and the way that Tunisia presents itself as, you know, quote unquote Mediterranean, as a way of denying Um, its position within the Arab world and denying the importance of Islam to make Tunisia appear in this very whitewashed version as a, again, in scare quotes, a safe space for European tourists. So there's a lot of marketing and diplomacy that go into that image. You also asked about the main actors. So the state is certainly an important actor in presenting images of modern womanhood through the political discourses of, of President Bourguiba, and also in inviting Tunisian women to serve as diplomatic representatives, both on state visits when the president is traveling and in hosting foreign representatives when they come to Tunisia. Some of the top-ranking women within the National Women's Union are also active participants in this project. And what I try to do is grant them enough agency that, yes, their visions of modern womanhood certainly overlap with and intersect with much of the state's vision, but they also have their own role to play in trying to improve the lives of women, even if it's in, in a very narrow sense or it still remains a largely middle class and, and urban project. I think the women writing and the women's press also play a role in disseminating this image within Tunisia um, and disseminating this image of Tunisia beyond the nation's borders. So the magazine Faiza that you mentioned, which is the main one that I look at, clearly has readers in Algeria. It has some readers in Morocco. There are some readers in France, um, many of whom might be North Africans who who are you know, part of the nascent diaspora. And the women writing in the women's press are by and large in the same socioeconomic and, and privileged group as the women affiliated with the National Women's Union. They're often close to the political party, they're educated, um, they are urban and, and they're clearly middle class. So it's a pretty narrow group of people who are participating in this conversation Um, and that may, you know, account for some of the singularity that they all seem to agree about certain characteristics of what constitutes modern womanhood, even when they diverge over some of the details.
0: So I really, this idea of women as sort of both symbolic and actual envoys for the Tunisian state is really interesting. But I'd love to turn inward now and sort of one of Borgieva's biggest post-colonial projects was his, quote, struggle against underdevelopment. So how do women, how are women implicated in this struggle? And then the reverse of that, how are economic imperatives reshaping these types of gender roles?
2: Excellent question. So there's a lot to unpack there. By and large, the struggle the struggle against underdevelopment is a project that intersects with, as you indicated, some of the economic imperatives of the post-colonial state. Because Tunisia is so firmly grounded in the Western bloc, in the post-Cold War era, despite the fact that Tunisia follows a version of socialism that Bourguiba calls Tunisian socialism, It's it, there are symbolic references to socialism, but... Issues of redistribution of wealth are not addressed in any coherent and sustained way, largely because part of the reason for Bourguiba's political power is that he agrees to maintain multiple French economic privileges after independence. So, with the moment of independence, there's not a lot of economic restructuring in Tunisia, and the Tunisian economy remains a dependent one. And tourism, which I mentioned a moment ago, is largely a dependent economy. So the struggle against underdevelopment is in many ways a political project to continue rallying support for the single-party state. It's uh, a rhetorical move to insist upon national unity um, and, and the strength of the single state political party after independence, women are brought into it, the way I look at it is through the example of the population movement, right? Um, And this is where gender intersects with these broader global questions about Tunisia's position within the Cold War um, and Tunisia's position in the population movement, as well as questions of um, development and sort of development economics. And Bourguiba highlights the role of rural women, largely Bedouin women, in having large families as being a cause of supposed backwardness and supposed poverty. In many ways, this is a pretty standard discourse within the population movement to blame women and large families for poverty. And the data entirely contradicts this, that it's not true that large families create poverty, but it's still a very powerful concept. And it's one that is adopted and translated and deployed within Tunisia, again, as part of the reach of the capital over rural spaces It's a way to avoid addressing structural and regional inequalities and, again, blaming rural people for their own poverty. So women are basically encouraged to have smaller families. Um, And yes, men are also encouraged to have smaller families, but largely population discourses focus on on women as if they have babies by themselves. Um, And men are largely left out of that. And the conversations between various actors within the population movement in Tunisia about why men are left out, of course, rely upon a lot of Orientalist stereotypes about, you know, men being protective of their families or protective of women, or this is too taboo. Um, But really, you know, these economic questions are basically forced upon individuals and forced upon families to, to, again, blame them for their own poverty, while ignoring the structural inequalities and the way in which um, economic development after independence focuses largely in urban areas, it focuses largely on forms of industrialization while not investing in agriculture um, and ignores a lot of peasant knowledge and you know farmers' knowledge about um, you know ecology and the environment and, and agriculture. So that's you know the main way that women are brought in is really only through population and questions of reproduction because the, you know, development as a whole doesn't really start to engage with women and gender until maybe the late 70s and the early 80s. And then women are kind of an add-on and the development, you know, movement or development organizations don't necessarily address gender.
0: So to continue along this track, one of the chapters I found really interesting in your book is the one that looks at the growth of post-colonial Tunisian academia and sort of how these debates about research and development are being hashed out in universities. Could you tell a little bit of the story about how women researchers um, fit into this and how they in turn brought the gender question in where possible?
2: Yeah, so... You know, the Tunisian Academy in many ways really is born after independence. The University of Tunis is founded um, in 1960, 1961. And, this, you know, this is the first university um, in Tunisia. Around the same time, the Ford Foundation is providing funds for the establishment of a pretty major research institute, um, the CERES, um, which still exists in Tunisia today. And Ford sees this as a hub for beginning interventions in this region of, you know, Northern Africa and and the Middle East. Um, So there are a handful of women or a number of women um, in the university during this period of time. Many academics are very committed to building a new nation And there are conversations, especially within the field of sociology, about the ways in which academic disciplines can be relevant, can provide knowledge to the state so that economic planning is done in a way that takes into account local factors and therefore is more sophisticated and better designed. So there are a number of academics who, again, are very much encouraged by the projects of the state. I don't think they agree with all of them. I don't think they're co-opted by the state, but they seem to be genuinely excited to work with the state and to have their knowledge used in ways that are going to benefit the largest number of people. And some of the questions that they're looking at are questions about rural spaces or how to apply development initiatives in rural spaces. And what I try to do in the book is trace these multiple processes where academics like um, Abdul Qadir Zgal is probably one of the best known sociologists of this period, are working in rural spaces and looking at agriculture and using this in some ways to push back against the way that state initiatives are being enacted from Tunis with little consideration for local conditions. And some of that reflects the way that development itself takes these models that often are based in the United States or Europe and then just sends them somewhere else in the world and tells people to apply them without thinking about ways that they could be better designed to embrace and improve local conditions. So there are a number of Tunisian academics who are trying to navigate and mediate these conversations and... um, There are women academics, Um, Sophie Fershiu is one of them, Um, Munira Shili is another, who are also looking at questions of women and gender, which is not really a big field of study in Tunisia, and it's not a major field of study in the United States, really until the end of the 1970s. So they're already looking at women, and they are using feminist methodology of really centering women and talking to women and then by listening to women in rural areas, trying to apply that knowledge to rethink development um, and rethink the very condescending um, stereotypes about rural people and agricultural communities and Tunisia's rural interior that are informing a lot of the way that development discourses are being applied in Tunisia.
0: So I'm going to make a big jump here from this very fascinating topic to another chapter that looks at miniskirts. Um, So I think any scholars of Middle East women's studies know that dress is often very politicized in this world. Um, But you sort of set aside the politics of veiling which is what this topic, you know, this conversation usually centers around, and instead look at miniskirts um, and look at the miniskirt and also at jeans and some other sort of fashion history pieces um, as reflections of changing cultural values. So can you talk a little bit more about this? What does the miniskirt tell us about these changing constructions of gender?
2: Yeah, so I, you know, completely agree with you. Dress is heavily politicized, and in many ways, women's dress is extremely politicized in ways that often lead scholars to ignore that men's dress can also be politicized. And in the chapter where I look at clothing, I I try to explore a little bit of both of those conversations, though because I'm looking at the women's press, that press talks a lot more about mini skirts and, and women's clothing. So mini skirts appear on a number of the covers of FISA which starts off in many ways as an art publication and is interested in fashion. El Marra and Femme, which are the two publications by the um, National Women's Union, also have pictures of shorter skirts. And in all of these magazines, there are sewing patterns. And in some ways, I think these are a common feature of the women's press in this era, but also in the Tunisian case, what you see consistently is the editors basically understanding that most women cannot afford to be buying new clothes all of the time and trying to find ways for, to encourage women to dress fashionably in their very specific understanding of what is fashionable um, and to provide means to do that through using sewing patterns that can be cut out of the magazine um, and then you know women can at home make their own clothing. And these include patterns for children's clothing. There are also sections that are designed to offer women advice on housekeeping, um, ways to clean their homes and have a presentable home that are cost effective, right? So there are these little tips like after your nylons have some holes in them, you should save them and then you can bunch them all together and make it into a little dust rag, Um that I found really interesting because there's, a, there's another scholar whose name I can't recall at the moment who is writing about the women's movement in, in the earlier part of the 20th century in Palestine and who is arguing that in the Palestinian case, um, women were, were being instructed on how to treat their domestic servants. And the presumption is that part of middle class womanhood was having a domestic servant. And in the Tunisian press in this period, it seems like that is not the case, that women themselves are supposed to be maintaining their household and having all of these various skills. So clothing is part of the presentation of modern womanhood. And this is a period of time where men are all being encouraged to wear suits um, and button down shirts and sometimes ties as the standard look of modern manhood. Um So there's a conversation in the women's press about the meaning of these skirts because there's a speech um, given by the president where he calls out miniskirts in particular, but also women's makeup for basically being degrading and shameless. And this is picked up by a number of different people, Um, people writing letters into the women's press, also complaining about clothing, clothing. and associating it with these broader moral questions. And in the 1960s, there is a bigger politicization of dress as a facet of changing social um, and moral concerns. In many ways, that's not at all that that dissimilar from concerns around the rise of the new middle classes, right, In in the 19th century or the early 20th century, that are that very much use consumerism as a way to critique changes in the social order. So the miniskirt basically fills that role. And what I find really interesting is that it's not just in Tunisia. So another important Tunisian uh, magazine of this era is called Jean Afrique, or Young Africa. And it started by a man named Bashir Ben-Yahmed, who had been part of Bourguiba's government, who later has disagreements with Um, Bourguiba and is largely in exile and publishing out of Paris. And over the years, the journal shifts away from its focus on Tunisia to take on sort of broader concerns in Africa and to become more of a quote-unquote third-world publication. Um, But in the early years, it's also very closely following events in Tunisia. And Jeanne Afrique is frequently pointing out all of the different places where the miniskirt is banned um, across Uh, you know, kind of across the globe um, in a very tongue-in-cheek way. And so I find that this conversation in Tunisia really has so many parallels to other places in the world that we don't always see in conversations about the politicization of dress in the Middle East when they fall very specifically on the veil, because the veil is an article of clothing that is predominantly worn in Muslim societies. But the politicization of dress in the 1960s is a bigger part of the Cultural struggles and the shifting, you know, social and political dynamics, and these countercultural movements that are taking place across the globe. So for me, the miniskirt is a way to bring Tunisia and to bring the Middle East into many of those conversations that I, I personally found really fascinating. And I learned a lot, you know, in reading about blue jeans in Argentina, um, and miniskirts in Tanzania, and long-haired boys in the United States. There's all this really fascinating. Um, research around the politicization of clothing and appearance in the 1960s.
0: So continuing this topic of sort of stretching the boundaries of what is acceptable, you this book falls into this ongoing debate about the relative agency of state feminist organizations. And I think you make a very strong case here that the women that we're talking about, the women who were writing for the women's press, who were part of the women's union, we're able in a lot of ways to negotiate and stretch the boundaries of state feminism, but not always. Um, could you talk a little bit about some of the consequences for women who, you know, crossed these boundaries or did something to displease the powers that be? Yeah. So the
2: the the best example is probably the life and the career of Raviya Haddad who is the president of the Tunisian Women's Union, basically from its foundation after independence until her dismissal from the party and from the Women's Union in in the early 1970s. Um, So some of the information about that, I have to say, comes from her own memoirs. um, And she has she she's really has two memoirs. One of them she wrote in French. It's called Parole de Femme that I believe she published in the 1990s. And then she has um, a longer interview in Arabic in a volume um, that I think is also called Memoir des Femmes de, Femme de Carriette That was a bilingual publication um, that also came out maybe in the 1990s or the early 2000s. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. So she... So Much of this is narrated from her own perspective. And when she's writing in the 1990s, some of what she's writing is a valid critique um, of of Tunisian state politics, but a very careful one considering the the nature of politics in, in the Ben Ali era. So Haddad gets placed at the head of the Women's Union largely by Bourguiba and against the wishes of the small core of women who had formed the union and who had taken a, a small vote amongst themselves about who they wanted to lead them. And Radia Haddad has familial ties to, to Bourguiba. I believe she's a cousin of Bourguiba's um, second wife, right? The first lady at the time. Um, Wasila Bourguiba or Wasila Ben Amar and Radia Haddad is also from the Ben Amar family. So, she, so I believe that they are cousins. Um, and this is typical in, in this period. Many of the men and women in prominent positions within the state have personal relationships um, with borgiba So she's a leading figure in this movement. Um, and in the organization, she has a really important diplomatic role. Um, but... <laughs> she is pretty much expected to stay very close to the party line and to not explicitly contradict that. And there are a number of movements, relatively small, contesting state power and Bourguiba's consolidation of political power in the late 1960s and early 1970s. One of these is a student movement, and there's a pretty harsh crackdown against students who protest, who are challenging Bourguiba's foreign policy. They're challenging some of his development policy, often with having the same goals, but a different path towards reaching those goals. Um, And there's also a movement within um, Bourguiba's own political party pushing for greater democratization within the party. And in many ways, that movement is not a direct challenge to Bourguiba or his authority. It's really just asking that he not appoint everybody and that party congresses be allowed to have a certain amount of deliberation and electoral processes. And Bourguiba reacts pretty harshly against that movement within his party. And Radia Haddad is one of the people who joins that movement. And some of the men who are are heavily involved in it are men with whom she's very close. Um, I believe one of them is her brother, Um, And because of her, so she gains this political visibility from her role in the National Women's Union, but she is also um, a a delegate in the Tunisian parliament, right? So she takes on this other political role that in many ways is parallel to to the role she has um, in the Women's Union. So what seems to happen is that... um, she takes part in this conversation. She agrees with people who are pushing Bourguiba to just allow for a little bit more democracy within the party. Um, Burgiba sanctions all of them. Around the same time, there are student protests and the regime cracks down on the students with very harsh measures. And the regime calls for a big rally where all of the different national organizations are supposed to... Show up and make a show of national unity that they all stand behind the president and they don't agree with his or and they don't agree with the critiques against him. And she apparently doesn't go, um, and doesn't go as a representative of the women's union. So the women's union is absent, and she presents this in again largely in her own memoirs as kind of wanting to support the student movement and displeasure with the harsh measures against them. And I believe that one of her sons is participating in in the student movement. I don't know how prominent of a member he is. Um, And after that, there's a smear campaign against her. There is a crackdown. She's removed as the head of the Women's Union. Um, She is removed from parliament. Um... And she's basically discredited, and um, there are judicial proceedings against her. She's charged with embezzlement, Um, and really, for anybody familiar with the history of Tunisia during this period under Bourguiba, this is a really common pattern. Every time somebody becomes very close to Bourguiba and becomes very powerful, um, that's followed by this harsh reaction, and legal proceedings against that person for corruption, right? This is the case with Ahmed Ben Salah just a few years prior to that, right? Ben Salah being the really important figure um, in, in the efforts to um, develop Tunisian socialism. Um, so Radhi Haddad is persecuted. She's forced out of the Women's Union, and she's repa- replaced by Fethiyeh Mzali, who is the wife of Mohamed Mzali, who becomes one of Bourguiba's main confidants, over the 1970s and 1980s, right? And and Muhammad Muzeli occupies, I think, eight different ministerial positions over the course of his career. Um, He also becomes very, very visible and very influential and then is charged with corruption and um, embezzlement and all of these other charges and pushed out. So again, Radia Haddad represents this pattern that we see more broadly in Tunisian politics. And that's also what I find interesting um, about her story.
0: So I think just from this conversation, it's clear to listeners that your book covers a lot of ground. Um, so I'd like to ask a little bit about the process of that. You know, I think one of the strengths of it is, is this creativity and the ways that you bring cultural history and literary history and emotional history to bear on some of these sort of harder topics of economics and politics and post-colonial transitions. So I'd just love to hear more about, as you were figuring out how to tell the story, how did you decide on the different lenses for these chapters?
2: Well, thank you for your compliments. You're a very (laughs) generous reader. I can only hope that all readers um, are, are as generous. So some of the topics are, are drawing really from the women's publication. So the chapter on fashion and the chapter on love in many ways are, are inspired by this publication and the way that I see the topics brought up in, in, the, in the women's press being amenable for talking about social history and cultural history. Um, so the, the chapter that deals with emotions is really inspired by the fact that there is this advice column um, in Faiza, and there are various iterations of advice sections in Al um, Mara and in Femme as well. But in FISA, they take on uh, they take up more pages and seem to draw a lot more reader engagement. And I see this as a really important space where the readers are interacting with the editors of the publication and having a conversation, right? So the women's press is a very rich source and I find it fascinating, but of course it has very clear limits. Um, The the three publications that I'm looking at, two of them are being published in French. Um, It's not entirely clear how widely any of these publications are circulating and they're clearly representing the views of the journalists who are producing them and, and not And in many ways, they're an aspirational view of femininity and in no ways a reflection of what's happening. So these spaces where readers are writing in open up that window a tiny bit, right? They're not giving us a huge amount of diversity because we're still talking about people who are literate, um, people who have the disposable income to have access to this kind of a publication and people who are, for the large part, literate in, in French. But it, in some ways, is a different generation. The readers of these publications seem to be much younger, um, in their teens and early 20s. And the journalists seem to be adults, um, probably in their 30s and 40s. So it's, in many ways, a post-colonial generation. And I found the column uh, about love and advice on love to be a really fascinating space where young people are asking questions and and very honest questions about, okay, so we have these new gender roles and now, you know, people are allowed to choose their own spouses, but how do you do that in practice? Um, And I found it to be a really interesting space where they're kind of shaping gender roles and navigating and negotiating the boundaries of what is proper femininity and what is proper masculinity and what can young people do and what can they not do and I try to tease out how there are disagreements between some of the young women writing and the older women who are responding to them with the authorial and editorial voice of, of the magazine. And again, I don't have access to any archives for this magazine. As far as I know, they, they don't exist. I tried reaching out a few times to Dora Bouzid, the journalist who, who ran these, um, and, and didn't get very far in those conversations. So I don't know that these are real letters, and it's entirely possible that the magazine made them up. <laughs> so my approach is to say, look, even if they did make them up, they must represent what people believed with it was within the realm of possibility, right, within these conversations. Um, and then I found that within questions about emotion, as a source for doing history, right, there is a field in history looking at Um, looking at emotions. But again, I have to give a credit to anthropologists, and I think anthropologists working in the Middle East have really done an amazing job in theorizing love. And I am very inspired by that scholarship, right? How can we use love to address broader social and cultural questions? And where anthropologists are doing it in a contemporary space, I try to think through what they're doing and try to use these letters um, and these conversations to um, to answer some of those questions. And there's also some really fascinating research. There's a great article that I draw on um, a, a chapter written by a historian um, working on the Nigerian English language publication drum magazine that also has a really big column on love. Um, and that scholar is, is walking through you know, how to use an advice column as, as a source for doing history. So again, some of these topics come from what I see in these magazines and then trying to build on some really amazing and exciting, exciting scholarship being done, again, by anthropologists of the Middle East looking at questions of love um, in terms of, of literature, um, Huda al-Shakri's work, um, on Tunisia, I find really inspiring and, and thoughtful. And so I try to think through, you know, how do some of her ideas about literature, and then some of the writing on the Moroccan, um, you know, sort of pan-Arab and transnational publications, en Fas, how do those connect with conversations that are happening in Tunisia at the same time?
0: Well, I'm going to ask you a question that's maybe unfair to ask a historian, but can you talk a little bit about the legacy of the women that you're writing about here, in light of the fact that Tunisia is now in the midst of another, maybe not political transition, but political moment. Um, how, does the, how do feminist groups today, how do women in politics today see the women of this era? And sort of what, what did their work do? How did it pave the way for this generation of Tunisian women? Or how has it hindered um, this generation?
2: Well, will say that feminist groups in the, so already by the 1980s, feminist groups are in Tunisia are really pushing back against the state domination over the National Women's Union. And There's a good amount of of scholarship and also a number of memoirs that date to that period, right? The 1980s and the early 1990s, where you have the beginning of the Democratic Women's Group um, and the group that's based out of the Tahar Haddad Cultural Center. And and many of those um, women have also written memoirs about their experiences in the 1980s. And really, they are concerned with the close relationship between the National Women's Union and um, the single-party state and the ways in which the state co-ops or controls or, or dominates any of those agendas. And they're looking towards creating uh, trans-North African, transnational solidarity movements with women's groups in Morocco um, and to a lesser extent women's groups in Algeria, and trying to chart a new trajectory for the women's movement, right? And so there are a few women's groups that are really um, born out of that. And in many ways, yes, it, it's largely a rejection of the National Women's Union. And in many ways, rightly so. The National Women's Union is largely a bureaucratic, so it's top-down. It's not based on um, democratic procedures or deliberations within the group, Um because it has state support, it reaches very broadly across the country and into rural areas, which I think is an advantage. But then of course the disadvantage is that much of the way that it functions as a structure is hierarchical. So it's not necessarily incorporating the views of women from these peripheral rural regions of the country. And I think some of those legacies carry over into today, this kind of negative depiction of the women's union because of its proximity um, to the state and a desire to push back against that. And as far as that desire leads to multiple women's groups that represent a broader range of perspectives, it's something that that I would encourage and that I think is quite laudable. Um, I don't have a strong engagement with um, Tunisian women's activists today. and look towards, you know, other scholars and other activists who are having those conversations. Um, but that would sort of be my, my initial way that, it, you know, if this is leading to more women's groups um, that are engaging with more questions. And in many ways, what I, what I hope to argue in the book is that, you know, the question is not so much just to talk about women, it's really to push for and intersectional analysis. And the bigger problem with the way that women have been discussed in Tunisia is that the question of gender is frequently isolated from everything else. And what I try to argue is that thinking intersectionally um, is a way to talk about politics. It's a way to talk about the economy. It's a way to talk about foreign policy and academia and social and cultural intellectual questions. But when women are always isolated, and not thought of in relation to those broader questions, or women aren't aren't thought of in relation to class disparities or racial disparities or racism and anti-blackness in Tunisia or the position of Amazigh or Berber women or rural women that we really lose a lot from these conversations. So my hope would be that, you know, and I do see this in Tunisia, that there are so many political movements today and activist organizations, and a lot of them are asking these more intersectional questions.
0: Well, I think your book is a big help in sort of pushing that conversation forward. So one final question, which is maybe also unfair since you've just finished this book, but what are you working on next? What's your sort of next project?
2: For the moment, my biggest project is reading um, Mm -hmm. and trying to catch up on so much scholarship. Um, Yeah, a ton of exciting new books that have been published in the last few years that I haven't had as much time to read because of being... um, focused on on some of the themes um, that are in this book. Um, And in addition to that, trying to connect some of this research um, to my teaching. So I'm currently teaching a class on um, transnational movements in the Middle East between the 1960s and the 1980s. So again, trying to build off of a lot of these ideas. Um, But yeah, I'm interested in kind of following Tunisians. Um, You know, in this book, I look a little bit at how Tunisians interact with academic networks that, are, that go beyond Tunisia, um, how they're involved in diplomacy. So some of my other work might be following Tunisians to other places um, beyond Tunisia.
0: Well, Amy, again, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's really been a pleasure. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk with you.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: I'm Rebecca Turkington and you've been listening to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network, where we've discussed Amy Calendar's new book, Tunisia's Modern Woman: Nation Building and State Feminism in the Global 1960s, a 2021 release from Cambridge University Press.